in most parts of this country? Heat wave. We're used to it, aren't we, in the summertime? But in Portugal, France, and Spain, and in the UK, they are not. Global's Redmond Shannon. This just doesn't feel very British. A head-melting heat. The rising mercury felt by locals and tourists alike. It's not quite as humid as it is back home when it's hot, but there's no air conditioning here, which is what surprises me. The UK just isn't set up for these types of temperatures. The school year goes well into July in some buildings which just aren't designed for the heat. Some schools have had to close. We can't expect much learning to go on in this sort of heat, is the the frank reality. One of London's main airports stopped flights for hours while workers repaired a section of melting runway. And train services have been delayed over concerns tracks are buckling. A growing acceptance Britain may need to adapt to a new future. And we are seeing hundreds of deaths in France and in Spain with very little relief in sight. Anthony Farnell is Global's chief meteorologist, and I asked him about the phenomenon going on right now, especially in the UK. Yeah, not just unusual. It is unprecedented that we're seeing temperatures starting to fall today, but uh, more concerned about tomorrow uh, that that they've never seen before. So uh, when you hit 40 degrees in London, uh, the warmest temperature ever in the UK is, is 28 or 38.7. So, so we're above numbers that and we're going back uh, centuries. So uh, this is just a, an incredible setup, the jet stream way up to the north. And this has allowed uh, air basically from Northern Africa to make its way through Portugal, Spain, France, and now uh, into the UK. Explain that jet stream and how often in meteorological terms does this occur and the impact here of climate change on that as well? Yeah, well, that, that's that's exactly it. it. It does occur from time to time, but uh, it's happening more and more frequently. Last year in BC, we had the jet stream way up to the north, that heat dome set up for so long before breaking down uh, in Europe similar setup in that the jet's way up to the north and it's actually being helped by an upper level low that's almost funneling or, or vacuuming that air and, and it's it's the speed that it goes from Africa to the UK it doesn't have time to to cool in the couple of days it takes so so that's that's the setup right now and and then by the middle of the week it starts to 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 be a bit cooler in the UK it's still moving into Germany and the Netherlands and and Italy and and some of these places that already have uh, extremely high energy costs because of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. And that's that's kind of a big concern when it gets into those areas that, that have air conditioning in the UK. Most people are just going to have to, to sit around and, and wait for it to cool down because they don't. Because they don't, because it's not part of the culture in many European uh, households. Air conditioning is not, it's more of a North American phenomenon. And you know, we're a country that certainly from my perch here in Winnipeg, we go from minus 30 to plus 30 in seasons. And yeah, we need heat, but we rely on air conditioning. And uh, we think that, you know, we need this and it's good for us. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe we need to adapt to our environment. Adam Reisnick is with us. Assistant Professor of Environmental Systems at the University of British Columbia's School of Architecture. Great to talk to you. Thank you so very much for joining us this Monday evening. Well, thanks very much, Richard. Great to, great to be with you. I'm not a huge fan of air conditioning. 
you know, I, I sometimes will escape to the air-conditioned vehicle, um, but I think sometimes a fan will do just fine. Do we rely too much on on air-conditioned air in this country when it hits plus 30? Well, it's uh, it's a tricky question because, you know, if we look at what's happening in Europe right now and a year ago in, in Vancouver, I mean, these types of heat waves that are unprecedented and even, you know, heat waves. I, I grew up in Ontario and the kind of heat waves we get east of the Rockies in Canada, I mean, that's, that's, that's real heat. That's the kind of heat that sometimes a fan isn't going to do it. But there's a difference, and, and this is the nuance that I think our cities in Canada and, and overseas have to get to, is that it's one thing to talk about having access to cooling and air conditioning to take the edge off when the heat is really extreme. And there's another where when we look at our building codes and even kind of policies in the direction of how we design buildings, where we say, well, you know, a building has air conditioning, it has heating, so why would it need openable windows? Or why would it need shading? Or why would it need fans? And all of these sort of intermediary actions that really is where a healthy building actually lies. And so the risk is not so much that we might be using it too much, is that it seems that we're getting signals that tell us that we can sort of use it uh, in absence of all these other measures that are really, really important. And we need to see a bit more of that. Europe is going to have a very tricky time ahead of itself in the next uh, year to come to reconcile with its cultural background, as you kind of articulated. They relied a lot more on natural ventilation and shading and all these other interventions. And I have a feeling that they're going to probably try to strike this kind of middle ground to not lose any of that, but to probably bring in some cooling, which is desperately needed when it's hitting 42, 43 degrees Celsius. The one thing I certainly have learned, and a lot of us have learned during COVID, was about the air that we breathe and filtration and what's good for you, what's not good for you. And I remember reading, um, you know, the the post-pandemic era uh, following, uh, you know, the, 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 the great Spanish flu about how that changed architecture and that um, buildings were larger, uh, there were more windows, buildings were white. Um, but they featured lots of air and lots of windows um, built around, you know, 1920s, 1930s. And we see that architecture as a result, directly as a result of that pandemic, don't we? Well, we do. And it's a a great point. You know, when we, when we teach students about the kind of history of AC and like ducted ventilation, which we've come accustomed to, especially in North America, I mean, it goes back to that era. And, and part of the reason, you know, back then is that if you were to open up a window in London in the 1920s and 30s in the middle of winter, the color of the sky would be rarely gray or blue, but if not black or yellow. And that was really just from the amount of coal and, and combustion that we were doing in our cities to generate heat, something we don't really do today. Back then, you know, pollution was, was if not, uh, if we think about a killer today, it really was a killer back in those days, even right up to the 50s and 60s and some of the clean air acts. And that drove a lot of the need for ventilation buildings. Things have switched, you know, in, in the last 50 years. And when we think about the difference between indoor air quality and outdoor air quality, it's no longer more of a norm where really it's much better to sort of recirculate indoor air or pass it through a filter. There's a lot of time where the outdoor air is perfectly well and clean to bring inside. And that was a challenge we saw during the pandemic because the legacy of that 1920s and 30s uh, drug on. 
and something I've kind of been really curious about is that, you know, strangely enough, we, we have similar climates in Europe and North America. And we have similar engineering on both sides of the ocean, too. But in North America, the kind of organizations that spoke to our codes and standards around air quality recommended that we should keep the windows closed as much as possible. And in Europe, they did the exact opposite, both in regards to COVID. It's interesting that there's such a big divide, even though we were talking about the same thing in air. And it really goes back again to the legacy of the 1920s and 30s, where we first learned about the need for filtration. And we didn't learn quick enough that the moment the outdoor air started cleaning up, we could probably go back to relying on our windows much more than we have in the last few decades. I remember an era, and I'll, you know, draw on my experience here in Winnipeg, where there was a generation of school buildings based on the need to insulate and the need to be as energy efficient in the 60s and mainly in the 1970s, where buildings were built with few windows at all, and the windows that existed did not open. And these became sick buildings in many cases because, frankly, Professor, they didn't breathe. You're absolutely right. You know, in that era, and we're entering a different kind of version of it today, that was the OPEC crisis that sort of brought on a rapid need for governments all around the world to conserve energy quickly. Uh, probably many listeners might be familiar, definitely in the West Coast, are familiar with Passive House, this sort of emerging standard of high performance, which... Sometimes it feels we've inherited from Germany, but the very first passive house in the world was in Saskatchewan, which Germans used as a model for the passive house standard. And that was a house built in the 1970s, around that era. And we have that. And and sick building syndrome, this idea of buildings not getting enough air through the ventilation system, was sort of identified in the 80s and 90s until we realized, oh, well, we made a mistake. We should bring in more fresh air into buildings. The challenge I think we are still today kind of faced is this cultural challenge. You, you kind of go back to the roots of, you know, we grew up in uh, in cities, and I grew up in Ontario, where we used to air conditioning, heating and cooling, the idea that we rely on this machinery to keep us comfortable. In Europe, it's a completely different cultural attachment. There is, in fact, more of an emphasis to say, even under the extremes, we need to try to have much more natural, breathable connection with our buildings between inside and outside. It's likely going to be borne by that same cultural demand and trying to get more of us in Canada feel that we need to return to those types of roots. Because without that, we often get more easily convinced that air conditioning is the sort of required solution here for these two kind of polar opposite climates where really it's not as much needed as, as we, uh, we think. Adam Reisnick is with us on uh, this Monday evening, Tuesday morning. He is from the University of British Columbia, has a background at Queen's, but prior to joining UBC, he led research out of the ETH Zurich Institute of Technology in Architecture. When we come back, we'll talk to him about that experience. And I do want to get his opinion on a Winnipegger who said, we need to also take a different approach uh, between heat and the right to heat and the right to air conditioning. Please stay with us. I'm Richard, in for Ben. Richard Kluche, in for Ben. Good to have you with us. Adam Reisenek is with us from the University of British Columbia. He's an assistant professor there. 
This is University of Winnipeg professor Danny Blair, who says the annual number of 30-plus degree days in the Canadian Midwest, if you will, could double in just two or three decades. By the end of the century, Winnipeg may have 50 days in an average summer, in an average summer, and places all across the prairies would have those kind of numbers in an average summer, which is the kind of summers that you'd see maybe in Kansas or Oklahoma right now. Here in Winnipeg, there's a local advocate, an activist by the name of Sal Burroughs. He says he's fortunate to run air conditioning during this midsummer heat. It's a necessary cool living space he says should be a right shared by all Winnipeggers, but one that is not outlined in our city's livability bylaw. It has a page and a half on maintaining heating in the winter and zero on maintaining cool in the summer. So when we're presented with these days where at times it could mean the difference between life and death, and certainly what we're seeing in Europe. Professor, this is something that we have to start thinking about policy-wise, is that we think about, yeah, we need a warm place for everyone in our winters, but also we have to start thinking about cooling areas and those rights to coolness, if you will, during our hot summers, which will only get worse in the years to come. I absolutely agree. And, and in fact, you know, policy measures like that are, are welcome. I mean, we, we know what we face here on the West Coast. We had excess deaths in the order of hundreds, not dissimilar in numbers even for, for the pandemic that we were worried about in that year. These are really significant issues. And a policy re- recommendation requirement to give access to cooling, starting with our most vulnerable to eventually all of us, is welcome. The worry I have, though, is when we look solely at air conditioning, we miss other discussions. What about playgrounds? Should they be shaded or not for kids? It's going to be 50 days exceeding over 30 degrees in Winnipeg where our kids go outside to a playground to play. What about windows in a building? Should they be openable or not? If we have air conditioning and heating, do we need any ventilation? What should a developer do in that context? Do they need to provide windows in multifamily buildings that are significantly openable to give fresh air, to give people a feeling, at least for the other days or in the evenings, that they're connecting to the outside? There's a big gap in that middle. In fact, what is challenging of our times is that we're dealing with this type of crisis, and it's already a significant step to require cooling and air conditioning. The challenge I find is that it's a little bit nearsighted to look at that single measure and not see the long-term implications on really health, mental health and well-being of, of our communities if we get too close to buildings that really just rely on windows closed for one season, windows closed for the other, and really a building that doesn't work for the middle period of time in terms of making it feel livable and welcome to all of us. Buildings and spaces that breathe and allow us to breathe in the natural way. So does this have to be codified? Does this need to be a part of building codes from coast to coast to coast? It it has to definitely start there. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, it's hard to say with these kind of middle ground. Let's take an example of of, of a, a, a sort of a, a situation that's difficult to sort of put into the code, like air conditioning, which is, you know, make your windows work so that they're really breathable. I mean, there's some science to that, but a lot of it in some cases is kind of the look and feel and how it works for us. 
we don't have really in the end enough experience in Canada. In Europe, for you know, listeners who've been there and if you've ever sort of traveled, you know that they have windows that open even differently than ours, these big windows that turn or they tilt. You know, we don't have a lot of vendors or suppliers for those windows in North America. At the very least, what we want our, our policymakers to sort of be at the forefront of is incentivizing more of these projects to demonstrate to, to all of us that these are really good, sensible solutions. You can still have cooling and air conditioning, and it's an important right to have in this warming world. But these buildings can look and feel much more differently than we have uh, seen, not just in the last few decades, but especially now where it looks ever more the types of residential spaces that young Canadians are going to be living in in their future are more dense settings, uh, um, multifamily settings under affordability crisis that requires buildings to be built cheaper. And if the only signal that engineers have is that it needs air conditioning and heating, they're going to provide it and not care about much else. And for all of us as Canadians, we just need to have more fuel in our tank to fight against this by pointing at these good practice buildings that right now are unfortunately too much in Europe uh, and need to be more present in Canada in this warming context. Based on your experience in Zurich and elsewhere in the world, is there a country that has it together that we could say, we need to do more of that? Well, it's, you know, it's going to always rely on, used to be a lot more worried about talking about, you know, Europe being a bit more at the forefront. Europe is a different continent, different culture than we have. I think we have to, though, look at Central Europe. And even if we think that Switzerland and, and sort of the Northern European countries are really rich, we see in Eastern Central Europe and Poland and, and Czechia uh, examples of the same measures. I think the best practice that we're seeing, uh, even in the UK, in France, and a lot of the European context and what the European Union has, has put forward are really valuable. I would say, though, it's not easily replicable because where they're coming from is really from a standpoint of a culture, a really public demand, almost a public anxiety to air conditioning and ducted ventilation, even while they recognize that cooling is important. And I think that's the kind of cultural change which is really difficult to do by policy, but probably we can do it by practice with a few more examples. And that's where I'd say policy in Canada needs to focus on demonstrating more of these buildings that are not so high-tech with their air conditioning technology, but more low-tech, more breathable, and more healthy for developers and communities in Canada to start saying, yeah, that's best practice. That's what we need to see more of. Professor, great conversation. A pleasure having you join us this Monday evening. Thank you very much, Richard. It was great. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.